Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Ashley Otto, Director of the Academy for Justice at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and you're listening to Measured Justice. This episode on the rights of crime victims will be introduced by my co-host today, Eric Luna, founder of the Academy for Justice and professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Thank you, Ashley. Today on this podcast episode, we're talking about the rights of crime victims as a matter of history, jurisprudence, and practice. And we're fortunate to be joined by two experts in this area. First, we're joined by Steve Twist, the founder of Arizona Voice for Crime Victims and one of the nation's leading experts on victims' rights. Among other things, Steve was a driving force behind the passage of Arizona's constitutional amendment, the Victims' Bill of Rights, and he was instrumental in Congress's passage of the Federal Crime Victims' Rights Act, as well as the first Marcy's Law in California and subsequently in other states. The recipient of various honors for his work, including the 2020 Victims' Rights Legend Award from the Justice Department, Steve is the co-author of the leading casebook on crime victims' rights, and he has been a longtime adjunct faculty member here at ASU's College of Law. We're also joined by my newest colleague, Shannon Yohani, a former prosecutor and legal advocate in Colorado and here in Arizona. Shannon has worked in criminal justice for nearly 25 years with extensive practice experience in criminal trials and appeals. As a prosecutor, Shannon developed best practices for domestic violence prosecution based on her prosecution of high profile and high risk domestic violence cases. Shannon also supervised victim services for the Boulder County Colorado District Attorney's Office and worked as a legal advocate in a domestic violence shelter, providing direct services to victims through a protection order clinic and by coordinating a pro bono family law clinic. Most recently, she joined the Academy for Justice as a research director whose portfolio includes the study of violent crime. You can find their full biographies on academyforjustice.org. Thank you both for joining us today. Steve, could you tell us a little bit about how you became involved in the victims' rights movement and what you see as uh, the role that that you hope to play as this uh, important movement goes forward? Well, thank you for the introduction, Eric, and thank you to the Academy for hosting this podcast to talk about a subject that I think is probably on the cutting edge of the development of criminal law these days and criminal procedure. My journey into the world of victims' rights began as a law clerk, believe it or not. I was a student at ASU, and I I, um, was offered a position as a law clerk for then-Governor Jack Williams. I didn't hadn't been involved in politics, but I answered an ad uh, on the bulletin board at the law school, and and uh, I was offered a law clerk position. And it was during that work that I reviewed for the governor uh, applications for commutation and pardon, and 
began to read stories about about victims. And, and I met a man, Frank Carrington, who uh, went on to become one of the founders of the of the nation's victims rights movement. Um, uh, Frank was kind of a mentor of mine. I graduated from law school and I I took a position, uh, accepted an offer to be a lawyer for the Navajo Nation. Um, I lived in Window Rock and I represented the Navajo Police Department and the Navajo Tribal Council. And Frank and I in 1975 collaborated and drafted a resolution that the Navajo Tribal Council adopted, establishing the Navajo Crime Victims Rights Commission. It was the first recognition by a government in North America of the rights of crime victims. And um, my work expanded uh, greatly after that. And I'm happy to go into more detail, but I don't want to take up too much time in the introduction. Well, that's terrific, Stephen. And I'd actually like to, to, to drill down because, as I mentioned, your, your, your advocacy and your work, both at the state level and at the federal level. And um, beginning as a, a, um, a young attorney and you're, uh, you're seeing the landscape of, of criminal justice, you're involved as, as a prosecutor for, for some time and also as an advocate more generally for uh, various causes, including crime victims' rights, and also, as you said, for uh, the Navajo Nation. What did you see at that time in terms of crime victims' rights, if there were any such rights? And how did that inspire you in terms of the specific actions that you would take in the uh, ensuing decades? So my my development in the understanding of the role of the victim in the criminal justice system was somewhat gradual. As I look back on it now, embarrassingly gradual. I should have seen more uh, earlier on. But after I left uh, working uh, for the Navajo Nation, I started my own practice with one partner, and I was retained by the Arizona House of Representatives to draft, redraft a proposed new criminal code for Arizona. And I did that work in 19, late 1976, 77, and 78, and ended up uh, uh, drafting the legislation that enacted a a new criminal code in Arizona and an entirely new sentencing structure. Arizona's sentencing laws up until that time were characterized by uh, uh, what's known as indeterminate sentencing, um, where the judges had broad discretion. Penalty for rape, for example, was everything from probation to life imprisonment. The system that I drafted that the legislature adopted was turn away from that into a system called presumptive sentencing, where each class of crime, each crime was given a classification and and each classification had a presumptive sentence and then a range that the court could either go down to or go up to, depending upon mitigating or aggravating circumstances. And it was in that code that I, I wrote just rudimentary restitution provisions um, that, as I say, I look back on it now and I I was um, insufficiently attentive to the plight of crime victims. But then uh, the new code took effect in October 1 of 1978. And because I knew a lot about the new criminal code, I got a, an offer to join the attorney general's office. And from late 1978 uh, through 
1991, I served as the chief assistant attorney general for the state of Arizona. And my understanding of the the role of victims and the challenges that victims faced in the criminal justice system grew over those years because of both cases that I was involved in and and uh, just observations on on other cases. Yeah, and one more quick follow-up, Steve, if you don't mind. You were, have been involved both in looking at at, uh, at both kinds, well, actually all types of law. You've been involved both in, in case law and advocating um, particular cases on for crime victims' rights. You've also been instrumental in passage of statutory law, and then, and then of course, here in Arizona, you were you were key in in bringing about a constitutional amendment. What do you think about the mix of these various these various levels or forms of law and the need to uh, press all of them or or some of them uh, with regards to the rights of crime victims? Well, I have to say, um, I was again. Uh... Uh, very naive after the enactment in 1990 by the voters of the uh, Arizona Victims Bill of Rights. I was fortunate enough to be in a position to draft that amendment, and it was submitted to the voters, and voters overwhelmingly approved it. And I thought, gosh, we have all these great words on paper, and these words are going to have the power to change the criminal justice system in a way that that is more respectful of the of the dignity of crime victims and the role of crime victims and that was naive and and if i had thought about it i I would have realized that there's a pretty direct parallel to the rights of of defendants people accused of crimes i mean they were words on paper in the u.s constitution for a long time before before they had the power to change the culture of the criminal justice system and we know now what the engine of that change was. It was lawyers who who took up cases on behalf of people who were charged and or convicted and they brought claims and they lost them and they appealed. And ultimately there was a body of jurisprudence from the US Supreme Court that gave power to the words uh, in the US Constitution to change the culture of the criminal justice system. And my experience now has been with regard to victims' rights, that the, the same the same rules apply. Um, it's not enough to have words on paper, even good words on paper. You need lawyers who take up cases and and who make case law. And and uh, you know, lawyers and judges uh, very often seem hidebound to the past, the way things always have been done. And um, it takes advocates to. Um, speak on behalf of people who, in my view, were marginalized and voiceless in the criminal justice system. Terrific, Steve. Thank you so much for that. Uh, let's turn to you, Shannon. Same question. What sparked your interest with victims' rights, and how has that interest carried through your career? Thank you for having me here. I'm honored to be part of this podcast and sharing this space with Mr. Twist. When I came to Arizona to start my practice, uh, I learned about him early on. So it's so I'm so thankful to be here with you, Mr. Twist, and um, share this space and this conversation. So I actually started uh, way back when I was an undergrad in the 90s, and I took a mislisted class. It was supposed to be women in religion, and it turned out to be violence against women and girls. The professor, Joanne Belknap, was fantastic. It was her first time teaching that class, her first time teaching actually at the university. 
And she encouraged us all to stick with it, even though it wasn't what we were expecting. And it turned out to ultimately be life-changing for me. I went from engineering to uh, sociology and women's studies. And from there, it sort of took off. And I found my passion, thankfully, when I was a junior in college. From there, I worked with uh, Professor Belknap on a National Institutes of Justice study. We did a longitudinal study examining domestic violence victims' experiences with the criminal justice system. So we met with them six months, 12 months, and 18 months after their criminal cases had concluded. We had a full abuse history and documentation and then uh, surveyed them about how they felt about their interactions with police, with prosecution, and with the judiciary. From there, I also started working as a volunteer and then later became a research analyst at the Boulder County Domestic Abuse Prevention Project. And what we did there was we collected all the data from Boulder County wide, so every jurisdiction in Boulder County, and we examined the law enforcement response, the prosecution response, and the bench's response to domestic violence. So we could do a comparative analysis across jurisdictions to say if one jurisdiction had what seemed inappropriately high dual arrest rates, we could go back to them and say, this seems to be a problem. What are we doing here? If we could compare bond, we could compare sentencing, we could compare all of those sorts of things so that we could actually take it back with data to show where we were seeing discrepancies in terms of um, intimate partner violence enforcement uh, throughout the county. So that was an excellent program. I moved from there to a master's program uh, for nonprofit management and a master's of public administration. And after that, I moved on to work as a legal advocate in a domestic violence shelter in Jefferson County, Colorado. And there I worked with our residents, uh, helping them with whatever legal issues they had going on, both uh, through a protection order clinic. We also ran a pro bono family law clinic. And then we had part of our office was based actually in the Jefferson County District Attorney's Office. And so they could direct refer victims to us for protection orders. So we navigated that whole process. From there, I moved to the Boulder County District Attorney's Office where I supervised misdemeanor victim services and also carried a caseload. And then I decided um, after watching so much from behind the bar that I needed to go to law school to have a little bit more power and a little bit more capacity to make the changes that I thought needed to happen in terms of prosecution and enforcement of victims' rights. So I went to law school and got out of law school and uh, served as a prosecutor for 10 years with the city of Phoenix. And while I was there, I implemented our domestic violence justice specialist program with our trial bureau chief who was there at the time. And we developed a really robust uh, collection of prosecutors who are really committed to domestic violence prosecution, ensuring victims' rights are upheld, I really developed that as a specialty with trainings and practice and carrying specialized caseloads and added to that while I was there carrying cases involving collisions with death or serious physical injury. Uh, those are particularly tricky cases for victim dynamics, both for folks who are seriously injured, um, navigating the process, and then for next of kin as they're trying to navigate the criminal justice system. So uh, as you mentioned, I've worked with victims in direct service for almost 24 years, almost 25 years now. And it's just always been a passion of mine. Wow. Just, you know, Shannon, you have such a, a wide range of experience, you know, providing direct services to victims, supervising victim services, working as a prosecutor. You've, you've really seen it from all perspectives. What is, what is your, what is your takeaway? 
it's difficult. So I, my takeaway is that people are really uncomfortable with victims in the criminal justice system. There's a subset of folks who do that direct service work who are really great at it. Uh, our victim advocates at the, at the prosecutor's office were fantastic. The victim advocates in shelters are fantastic. But on the whole, the criminal justice system really, really struggles to engage effectively and often appropriately with victims and to acknowledge the importance of them and also to acknowledge the humanity of them, that the decisions that we make in everyday practice affect the realities of individuals other than ourselves. I used to always say, at the end of the day, I get to go home and the decisions that I make in my work don't affect where whether I can brush my teeth in my own house or I can feed my children or I can pay my rent. But the decisions I make as a prosecutor absolutely tangibly affect whether or not victims can do that on a regular basis. And I think that that gets missed far, far too often in the system. So that was always a frustration of mine um, in engaging with victims. And so I really tried to get my fellow prosecutors to understand that aspect of their work and get better at that victim-oriented perspective when engaging with folks. That's that's really important, Shannon. And, I, and I'd like to, Steve, I'd like to tie that in. What do, Steve, what do you see from, from your perspective as an expert and an advocate who knows both the minutiae of, of, of state law, but also can see the broader landscape and is, has been involved in the federal uh, issues in this sphere as well? What do you see as the challenges in implementing um, the provisions that are, in fact, have been enacted uh, to support victims' rights. What are what what are uh, is their perspective, their views, their needs? Are they being uh, taken into consideration? And and what do you see as the major barriers going forward for victims in accessing their rights and protections? I think we've made great progress. Um, my experience most directly has been with cases in the Maricopa County Attorney's Office and the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Arizona. Although I have been involved in in cases in uh, California as well. And I think Shannon's observations are right that that, that there is a challenge uh, that we face with uh, probably an insufficient amount of training in the implementation of victims' rights. But having said that, I think we're much better now than we were uh, a decade ago. These rights, remember, have been on the books for a long time. I mean, Arizona adopted them in November of 1990. Um, and and we've made a lot of good progress. Things are a lot better now, but they're imperfect. Uh, uh, I look at the at the Arizona Constitution, for example, and the rights are enumerated in Article Two, Section Two Point One of the Constitution. I look at those as a promise that the people of Arizona have made to crime victims that if if they are the victim of a crime, they'll have these rights, and the rights will be respected, and they'll be treated with uh, dignity, and we still have a ways to go. And I think the biggest challenge um, is to uh, try to expand the um, legal services that are available to crime victims uh, in in their criminal case, uh, so that um, uh, they they do have a voice. That the the state, as we all know, the prosecutor doesn't represent the crime victim. The prosecutor represents the state. Um, and while the interests align uh, in many ways, they they don't always align. Um, and the victims are entitled, a, a decent society uh, would give victims an independent voice that was meaningful. So I think that's a challenge. 
Thank you, Steve. Steve, you mentioned that the biggest challenge is, is expanding the legal services. And Shannon, I want to I want to turn to you, um, and you touched on this a bit previously. But what happens when the victims reluctant, you know, to, in the criminal justice system? You know, as Steve just mentioned, prosecutors represent the state, not individual victims, and are expected to be ministers of justice, so to speak. Uh, at the same time, they have an obligation to ensure victims' rights are satisfied. How do prosecutors juggle all those roles when there is a conflict? Is it ever okay for a prosecutor to force an unwilling or reluctant victim to participate in prosecution? And if so, what, what do those circumstances look like? This is, I think, probably the most challenging area for prosecutors in prosecuting victim crimes. And I think the answer to that question depends on who you ask. It's some prosecutors probably would say it's always okay to force an unwilling victim to participate. That's not something that I would agree with. One of the things that the victims' rights, uh, really nationally, every victims' rights statute codification represents the right to be heard and the right to confer with the prosecution. But one of the things that's clear is that they all, all, almost all also state that a victim's right to confer is not the victim's right to dictate the course of the prosecution. Well, as a trial attorney, a victim not showing up for trial does ultimately dictate the course of a prosecution if they're a necessary witness, which often they are. And so at that evaluation of when you sort of force or you don't take a victim's reluctance or unwillingness to participate as what will end the case, where that line is can be a really tricky one to draw. When a victim's reluctant, but really any case, good practice in prosecution should always be evaluating whether or not you can proceed on a case without the victim. Unfortunately, Crawford and its progeny really decimated a prosecutor's ability to proceed without a victim at trial. The ability to get a victim's statements in is really, really difficult at this point. And so uh, the folks who are calling for evidence-based prosecution when victims are reluctant, it's a very difficult thing to actually make happen in practice. Absent an admission from the defendant or an independent witness, most cases cannot go forward without a victim actually participating in trial. So that's a tricky thing. For me in my practice, the line that I had, which is sort of difficult to articulate, was that on the whole, where a victim decides not to participate, okay. That's, uh, and also keeping in mind, I'm a misdemeanor, I was a misdemeanor prosecutor. So um, my line on that in terms of public safety and community interest may be a little bit different. But, and also coincidentally, many prosecutor's offices have a policy where any non-domestic violence victim cases, if a victim doesn't want to participate, the prosecutor's office doesn't go forward. So non-DV victims are given the agency and autonomy to make a decision that they don't want to participate in prosecution. And generally, the prosecution acquiesces to that decision. The no-drop policies in domestic violence cases, community-based advocates often would argue that those are very uh, paternalistic and very uh, disempowering to victims to say, well, I understand that this is your decision, but you don't get to make that call. Domestic violence is a topic that could be covered in multiple, multiple podcasts, but it's sort of a different scenario when we're talking about victims continuing to re-engage with perpetrators. So where that no-drop policy is, there is even a line within that. In some circumstances, I think a victim's unwillingness to participate should be taken as, okay, 
you get to make the decision. You have the agency. We will acquiesce to that decision not to participate and allow for the case to be um, dismissed. But for me, there were only in the 10 years that I did this, there were only two cases in which I uh, was less than willing to accept a victim's non-participation. And by that, I don't mean I forced anybody physically or sent officers to their door um, to pick them up for a subpoena, but with the reluctance, continued to make sure we got personal service, said, if I do have to send an officer to your door, I will um, to pick you up for court. But in those circumstances, there were children who had been witnesses to substantial abuse. And that, for me, created that line where the victim's unwillingness to participate wasn't just about her choice to remain in a relationship where she was subject to abuse, but it was her choice to remain in a relationship also exposed her children to that. And so those were, that's a, was a line for me personally as a prosecutor where that unwillingness to participate wasn't okay. Uh, but for the most part, it was usually a, okay, and then we'll move forward. So it's really tricky. One of the other areas that kind of would come up with the victim's rights, enforcing victim's rights, and the minister of justice and the role as, as representing the state, not the victim, was often in restitution. Uh, that was a tricky area because oftentimes victims would submit restitution requests that based on a prosecution evaluation or a legal evaluation were not compensable under victims' rights. They may have been compensable in a civil suit, but definitely were not compensable in, in victims' rights. And so as a minister of justice, uh, we have to make sure that the victim is heard. They get to make the restitution request. We can't say, no, you can't make this request. But I can't in good faith as an attorney and a minister of justice advocate for them to be compensated in the way that they're asking for. So that would be always a tricky thing. But at the same time, you would acknowledge that to the court. This is what the victim is asking for. This is what I think is a compensable amount and satisfies the legal requirement. But ultimately, it's up to the court. So there's lots of ways. And there's also ways in prosecution that uh, I think when you go back to that ability to engage effectively with victims, that unwillingness or reluctance to participate can be something that resolves with discussion in an honest conversation about victims. If it's a safety concern or there are things that can be put in place to assure the victim's safety if they participate, what are the barriers for non-participation? Is it transportation? Is it childcare? Is it fear? Is it, you know, what are all of those things? And if those things can't be overcome, then that may be the resolution of the case. But if they can, and then you can get a successful prosecution, uh, then I think that that's the way to go. I agree with uh, Shannon's comments, uh, particularly the last one uh, about the need to have more consultation and more ability, a better ability to resolve barriers to uh, uh, victims wanting to prosecute. Um, obviously, there's just a, a lot of challenge in this area. Uh, it's hard to know exactly uh, what the pro-victim position is. Um, other than looking at each individual case on its own and and understanding the dynamics that are going on. You know, I, I think about how this is a problem in part because we've come a long way from the criminal justice system that we had at the time of the founding. You know, we had a common law system then and, and uh, it was characterized predominantly by private prosecution. Victims were their own prosecutors. 
there was an office of attorney general, but it it really was a had a negative role with the writ of noli prosequi. I'm sure I butchered the Latin, but uh, the null pros, what we call now the null pros motion. But you, you know, from a time of private prosecution where victims were in control of the cases, to a time where the government really has a, had a monopoly on the power of investigation and prosecution, where up until the victims' rights movement, uh, victims were just treated like another piece of evidence. There's been uh, a lot of progress away from that now. And so we're learning as we go. It's, it's really interesting as a historical matter, Steve, and also as a kind of jurisprudential matter. With that, that background, that history, and the reality that exists in terms of uh, the modern interpretation of criminal defense rights, which have become kind of the stock of, of criminal procedure courses. What does it, what, what do you see as being necessary or what are the issues when you have defense rights as they are, are, are currently understood, uh, conflicting with um, the rights of crime victims that are now enshrined in uh, criminal codes or in other provisions or even in constitutional provisions? What, how does this, how does the conflict play out and, and what is your thoughts, both in terms of as a historical matter, but then in terms of moving forward? Well, I, I see the areas of true conflict uh, of the clash of, of constitutional rights uh, to be very narrow. If you go down the, the, the list of rights, either in the CVRA, the federal statute, or uh, in the Victims Bill of Rights in Arizona, or any of the other states where we've gotten it, and you look at each individual right and and think about does this have the potential of infringing on a constitutional right of a defendant there, there just aren't any uh of of any of any significance you can argue the the right in Arizona of a victim to refuse uh a interview deposition or discovery request infringed on the on the right of defendants to force victims to depositions. But as we know from the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, defendants don't have a constitutional right to discovery other than within the limits of Brady. And and that's not a right to force uh, victims to go to a pretrial deposition. That was hotly contested at the time, but it wasn't an infringement on a defendant's constitutional rights, the right to notice, the right to be treated with fairness, the right to be present. None of these really are constitutional rights. Now, that having been said, let me drop a footnote. Of course, if a victim is present during trial and a victim acts out so emotionally that the jury is distracted from being able to hear the evidence, for example, well, then, you know, the judge is going to have to control the courtroom. But these things really don't happen. I mean, we've got case law in Alabama, for example, in the case book that we have that you mentioned. In Alabama, for decades now, victims have a right have had a right to sit at counsel table during the prosecution of of a of a criminal case. Um, and there are cases where, you know, during an autopsy uh, testimony, a wife of a murdered husband uh, began to tear up, and court did not declare a mistrial. Um, uh, things like that can be handled with jury instructions and taking breaks. And so I just don't see the 
the conflict really between victims' rights and defendants' rights, and and they should be uh, both honored to the greatest extent possible. And where there is an allegation of conflict, courts will balance uh, and come up with the right decision, like they do with fair press, uh, uh, free press, and fair trial. Courts balance these things. I'd agree with Steve. It it was rare to have it come up at least from a, the defense side, that there was some infringement on defendants' rights. In fact, in my experience, it was more often the conversation was trying to explain to victims how defendants' rights sort of limited theirs more so than how their rights limited a defendant's. So, and I think, as he said, the biggest one would be the limitation of the defense interview. Also, um, any requests to contact the victim about a defense interview or anything like that have to go through the state. So um, defense is supposed to always communicate through the state in order to reach the victim. So and those that's just the the state basically just acts as a conduit that we're not allowed to filter that process. But those protections from harassment, I think, are fantastic. So I think the best the main defense complaint would be, as Steve mentioned, you can't just go get a victim. You can't show up at their house. You can't send investigators to their house. You can't engage in that sort of behavior that can be perceived as intimidating or trying to uh, coerce a non-participation or things like that. And so they don't really infringe on the rights. They protect a victim from some of those kind of predatory defense tactics that may be out there. Or there's predatory defendant tactics because for pro se defendants, you have that issue where it's it's a direct one-to-one contact between the victim and the defendant. So those rights, I think, are super important in those cases where it's a pro per rather than a professional trying to engage with the victim on a criminal case. I mentioned earlier um, that some of these rights remain as unfulfilled promises. And one area relates to what we're talking about now, and and that's the victim's right to a speedy trial. I mean, as we know, the defendant has a constitutional right to a speedy trial. Um, but, you know, sometimes defendants don't, I say sometimes sort of tongue in cheek, don't want a speedy trial um, because for tactical reasons, the, the defendant may think that delay is, is to their advantage. But, you know, we have cases in Maricopa County where, it, it takes years from the charging to the trial. Mostly these are uh, first-degree murder cases. And and the, the contest here is between the victim's right to a speedy trial and the defendant's right to an effective lawyer. An effective lawyer means a lawyer with enough time to prepare um, and right to a, a fair trial. And, and we have not yet figured out what the right balance is between um, giving the defendant a reasonable time to to uh, uh, prepare and at the same time trying to honor the victim's right to a speedy trial. So this is an area where there's going to be more litigation and and uh, more appeals and and ultimately we'll get a body of jurisprudence on this. Thank you both. Uh, I'd like to shift slightly and throw this next question out to to both of you. In the current climate of rising violent crime rates, there seems to be little focus on the victims of these crimes. How can we expand the narrative around the rise in crime rates to include the perspective of victims? 
Well, I think it's a very important question. First and foremost, um, uh, we can't focus entirely on um, the interests of the state and the interests of people who are accused of committing violent crime. We've got to take into account the victim and and make sure that that their rights are protected during the process. Um, and you know, I look at that and and say that you know we have to have a criminal justice system that isn't radically catching and releasing people to uh, commit more crimes. So be happy to pursue that more. Part of what's challenging is as violent crime rates in particular have risen over the past couple of years, there's also been documented reduction in police response to crime overall, but in particular violent crime. And so the tricky thing is, is most victims' rights statutes, the trigger for victims' rights is formal charging. And so, as Mr. Twist just mentioned, it takes a long time often for cases to go to trial. Well, if victims' rights aren't even triggering until somebody's been charged, and we have cases that are sitting uninvestigated or even unresponded to by law enforcement for substantial periods of time, we have victims just sitting in limbo. They don't have uh, attached victims' rights. They really don't have a capacity for enforcement of anything at that point. And so they just sit and wait. And so while the narrative talks a lot about, oh, these violent crime rates are rising, it's there's very little conversation about what the tangible effect is, is, is on the victims. How are the victims being affected by this? What are the ways that we can remedy that or change the focus of law enforcement? And I think law enforcement wants to do a good job but given all of the things that are happening currently politically it and uh, staffing and all of those sorts of things, the response rates have declined. And so uh, we have all these folks that are still suffering the same traumas and the same victimizations that are sitting out there just waiting for a response for, from the criminal justice system and they're not getting it. Yeah, I agree with Shannon. I mean, she's right to focus on staffing. I mean, it's no secret that, for example, the Phoenix Police Department is hundreds of officers below um, what what their standard has been in the past. Um, there has been, if not a de jure defunding of the police, there's a de facto defunding. There are a lot of reasons for this. Um, the attack on police uh, um, have made it hard to recruit people. Um, uh, but it's not just the Phoenix Police Department. It's it's police agencies all over the country, all over Arizona and all over the country. And of course, when there's less policing and, you know, I, the ironic thing, some, some think it would be ironic, um, is that the, the, the communities who, who are the strongest voices for, for making sure that the communities are safe are very often the ones that victims groups that are just ignored. And Shannon, given what, what you've said and, and what Steve said, I'd like to get your take on what additional work do you think needs to be done to continue to advance victims' rights and, and at the same time ensure the system is still serving its purposes? I think the best thing is that there has to be more training from all aspects of the criminal justice system response to victims, from law enforcement all the way through um, sentencing, parole boards, all of those sorts of every facet 
of the system that responds to victims and has uh, engagement with victims needs to do better at responding. There is, folks are very, very uncomfortable with victims. They're very, very uncomfortable sitting in people's trauma. They're very uncomfortable sitting in people's feelings and um, acknowledging that it's not personal that these, but for those people in the system, it is personal. And I think prosecutors want to do a, a good job. Law enforcement wants to do a good job. The bench wants to do a good job. I think everybody in the system wants to do a good job, but there's almost no training. There aren't trainings at the police academy about how to effectively engage with victims, understanding the dynamics of trauma. As a prosecutor, I was not trained at all on how to effectively engage with victims. I was trained about the statutes. I was trained about what the victim's rights law is. I received absolutely no training about here's how you effectively engage with victims. Here's how you compassionately and professionally engage with victims. Here's how you can understand the way their trauma works and how they testify and how they tell their story. None of that was, was given to me. I'm very thankful because I have the, the victim advocacy background that I came in with that foundation. And that assisted me so very, very much in my practice. But that's not something that's universally trained. I also interned with the county. I was not trained on how to engage with victims. And so I think that that's a big thing. I attended a CLE a few years back, and I don't remember the name of the woman who's speaking. But one of the things that she said that stuck with me that's been my mantra since then is that victims deserve the best attorneys. I think in the legal system, there's sort of a pejorative view towards going into government practice, going into prosecution or defense work, that there's this perspective that if you're the best and the brightest, that you do uh, big law, that you don't, you don't go be a government attorney. Um, and I think that's absolutely the opposite of the way it should be. It should be that we're putting our best and brightest in upholding the constitution and protecting victims' rights and doing those sorts of things. So the legal community, I think, needs to do a better job at talking about what a valuable aspect it is to uh, devote your career to doing this type of service work because it's huge. And there needs to be a conversation um, also within the criminal justice community about how we can still do our jobs and be good at interacting with victims. And they don't need to be mutually exclusive categories. Another thing that is huge is and we talked about the reduced staffing with law enforcement. One of the critical factors is, particularly in misdemeanor prosecution, the volume with which an individual prosecutor has to deal in a courtroom in any given day or looking at what's on their desk in a day is huge. When we're talking about jurisdictions that have tens of thousands of cases that come through in a year and 25 attorneys, the ability to spend the amount of time that's that should be spent with victims and should be spent with victims' cases, it's just not there. And so slowing that, the ability to slow that process down, have folks that can have the time and opportunity to meaningfully engage with victims would be a critical factor. And the other big thing that I think needs to change is the culture of organizations. Just like I said, I didn't receive the training. When I was in Boulder County, the culture of that organization was very much about putting victims' rights front and center to the prosecution and to what we were doing. Um, and that changed how everybody engaged with victims. It changed how the bench engaged with victims because it changed how prosecutors were presenting their cases. It changed how the defense was engaging with victims because of how the prosecutors were engaging with victims and same thing with law enforcement. So the cultures of the organizations 
that are engaging with victims in the criminal justice system have to also shift to honor and respect the rights of crime victims if they're going to be honored and respected. It can't be a one-off of uh, certain prosecutors really good at it, but the bulk of them are not. Steve, I'd like to give you the, the last word on this um, and, and with some perspectives. I believe it was in 1996 you founded uh, the nonprofit organization, uh, Arizona Boys for Crime Victims. Um, and I, I, as, I, as I understand, it's the first clinic of its kind to provide both legal and social services to crime victims. So you have 25 years of experience uh, with that important organization. You have an even longer period in your own work and advocacy for crime victims' rights. With this background, what do you see as the foreground, the future of crime victims' rights? What should we anticipate going forward? What are the vistas uh, that uh, the public, uh, that scholars and that practitioners should be looking to? Well, I appreciate the chance to um, conclude with uh, some thoughts about that. I do wanna just comment on what uh, Shannon said. I don't think people should be left with the impression that, that, for example, the prosecutors in the Maricopa County Attorney's Office are not sensitive victims' rights. As I've said a little bit earlier, I think we've made great progress. And the victim advocates who are in the Maricopa County Attorney's Office do an amazing job uh, of uh, uh, helping victims through the system uh, endure both the trauma and the and the challenge of the criminal justice system that that they're presented with. So uh, we have to build on on those improvements, but uh, the victim advocates do just an amazing job, and and I'm very respectful of the challenges that the lawyers have to prosecute their cases and at the same time try to try to work with the victims and the advocates. That having been said, I have a, a, a practical solution or a practical proposal for the academy. I think that the academy ought to put together a team of of victim rights lawyers and victim advocates to produce uh, training that could be given to police departments, to AZ Post, uh, to prosecutors' offices, and and uh, really respond to the challenge that Shannon has given us to to provide more training. And I think the academy is a is a perfect vehicle for that. Um, uh, and and we ought to work on trying to get funding for the academy to do this. So. That's a practical suggestion that I have. Down the road, you know, I, I started in 1996 as a counsel for a coalition of national crime victims' rights groups trying to get a federal constitutional amendment for victims' rights uh, through the Congress. Uh, we had hearings every year from 1996 in both house, houses until 2004, uh, could never quite get to cloture. And then that's what led to Senator Feinstein and Senator Kyle asking me to draft what became 18 U.S.C. 3771, the Crime Victims' Rights Act. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to uh, argue the first case in the Ninth Circuit uh, uh, on on enforcing the, the new CVRA, Kenna versus District Court. We've litigated it a lot now. Paul Cassell, our colleague, uh, Paul Cassell, is probably the premier litigator in the country on victims' rights law now. Um, and that's what we need to do. We need to keep litigating the CVRA. We need to expand 
um, into the 17 states that don't have state constitutional amendments. I, I see this as a progression that is inevitable. Thank you, Steve. Uh, we could go on for another hour on these topics between yourself and Shannon, but unfortunately we've reached the end of our time today. I want to thank our guests for a really terrific discussion. Steve Twist, the founder of the Arizona Voice for Crime Victims, and currently he's the Vice President and General Counsel at Services Group of America. And our new colleague, Shannon Yohani, Research Director with an emphasis on violent crime here at the Academy for Justice at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Thanks also to my co-host, Ashley Otto, and to our producer, Amina Ketchin Kamau. This product is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice. <laughs>